This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, and I want to urge you to make a generous donation to the Wayne Foundation so we can stop the sexual trafficking of children. Do it, or I'll find you. Hey listeners, Jamie Walton here. This is a friendly reminder that just like all shows on the Smodco Network, the Wayne Foundation podcast is explicit in nature. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Thanks! This is Jamie Walton with the Wayne Foundation Podcast. How is everybody today? I hope my audience is wonderful. Today we have a very special guest from the state of Florida, Department of Children and Family Services. Everyone say hello to Kim. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Good. Uh, Kim is with DCF and the Wayne Foundation uh, recently partnered with DCF on a uh, several projects that are in the works, but the most notable one that we've been doing uh, over the last few months is we started a PSA program that was called See It, Report It. I went to Kim and I said, Kim, if you had a message that you were going to put out, what would it be? And what was your response to me, Kim? Definitely that we need identification and reporting. So we need people to be able to recognize um, when we have children who are being exploited and then to call the hotline or call law enforcement and report it. Awesome. That's it's, it's so true. And this is evidence-based, right? That's what we discussed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important that we have a mechanism by which the people who see these kids every single day and may not recognize what, what they're seeing um, get a more realistic image of what's going on and know that they need to immediately call and ask for help for these children. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So see it, report it. In case you haven't seen it, um, it is available uh, on our YouTube and on Kevin Smith's YouTube. And it stars Kevin Smith and I uh, on the very famous Comic Book Men set, in case you haven't seen it. And uh, you're welcome to download that. It's uh, available publicly. And the Wayne Foundation aired that uh, PSA during the month of October. And right now, as of tomorrow, we will be wrapping up a fundraiser to air it again in January. So, and that fundraiser did very, very well. Uh, right now we're looking at around, uh, we got about 60% of our goal. So we're looking at at least two more Florida markets that we can air this for 30 days in. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's, and, and so our, uh, our audience understands is that what the whole idea of this is, is that the more reports that DCF receives, they are finding more victims. It's not a matter of uh, empty reports and a whole lot of man hours to have nothing happen. They really are finding kids. So that's why higher reporting rates are so very important. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a, other, there's a couple of other reasons that it's really critical as well. Um, one is we continue to run into this perception from people. When you say human trafficking, they think we're talking about smuggling. Right. And they get very confused about the conversation and they think it isn't really applicable to American children, and it absolutely is. The vast majority of cases that we see um, are domestic minor sex trafficking. So that means children who are U.S. citizens or, or are here legally and naturalized or have a green card 
Um, so there, there are children, there are children who are being exploited um, and helping the public understand that a child cannot consent to prostitution ever. Um, that is always human trafficking under federal and state law, um, and that they have an obligation if they see it to report because everybody in Florida is considered a mandated reporter. And mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a reportable offense. The other reason that is really, really critical is because um, we have to identify victims to get services, and we have to know how many kids we have to understand what type of funding is needed to serve those children. Um, and so it's really critical that they all be identified as early as possible because then we can intervene earlier. Um, and for children who suffer complex trauma, you know, that carries on forever. That's not something that you give somebody a class and they suddenly are healed and better and ready to move on. Um, complex trauma is a lifelong struggle. And so we have to make sure that we have all the services in place to give people the strength to go on to be able to become survivor leaders um, and to be able to um, develop programs and provide for the kids who are behind them. Absolutely. And I, um, for me personally, I hear so much of my story when I listen to you describe the average uh, child that you see that's being exploited, um, the telltale signs of it, the things that you're dealing with. I look back on my own case from 16 years ago, and it's identical. Yeah, I think one of the things that you and I have talked about that's so frustrating um, from a response position, from those of us who are working with this population, um, is how people talk about these children. Um, you know, they are very often the product of trauma, um, sexual abuse, domestic violence households, drug addicted parents. Not always, there's always the exception. Um, but there's almost a blueprint that we can see with this population of kids who are victimized in their youth. So that when it comes to the point that they are exploited, and they become involved in sexual exploitation, then we start hearing these labels that are placed on them. Oh, that child's a chronic truant. That child is ungovernable. Uh, they're a habitual runaway. They're manipulative. You know, they have all these very negative connotations for kids who are fundamentally surviving. Absolutely. And they found a way to survive. Um, and so I think anytime you hear those words, your red flag should go up and you should start asking questions. Okay, great. So. If you had advice for our listeners, because obviously trafficking is not something that happens really like out in the open as so much as you would say, think of. Um, so do you have any advice for what types of things people should be looking at in behaviors and teenagers that might be a red flag for them? Oh, absolutely. I think the things that we just laid out, yeah. the things that you really, you know, especially if we're talking about law enforcement, um, juvenile justice system, uh, child welfare, uh, so the school district, people who are coming in regular contact with kids really need to be cognizant that they start throwing those words around, that this kid is a chronic runner, that this child is a habitual truant, that this child is manipulative, um, they have an older boyfriend, um, there are, are strong family conflict in the household, that the parent has a potential drug addiction problem, um, that the child is potentially using drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things, it's really, really important to understand that we're all products of our environments, right? We, we raise certain ways very often, and this influences who we become. And, and there's tremendous research that's been done on the power of trauma on the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get very frustrated when I hear people say, oh, well, they might be 15, but they're a prostitute because they want drugs. You know, we very rarely know what came first. Right. Is a child using a substance in order to manage mental health issues, 
childhood trauma so that they are being exploited and they don't want to have to feel what's happening to them and so substance abuse comes into play or have they been addicted by their pimp right um you know we've had situations in which for instance heroin was in, uh, introduced to to the kids forced them to become addicted and then turned out um, and then the child has to work to maintain their addiction that wasn't theirs to begin with. Yeah, I, I've run into um, a few cases like that as well. Right. So I, I just think it's really important um, that we never look at a child and prejudge a situation. It's really important that we ask questions and that they are appropriate questions and that they are, you know, um, if you're in doubt, if there's a red flag going on in your head and you and you think something is off here, Call us, call the hotline, call 1-800-96-ABUSE and allow us to make the determination of what's going on. Um, so people are not afraid of calling that number to report something that um, might to them seem innocuous, mm -hmm. but to us seems like a huge red flag. What happens if they call and there's nothing happening? There's nothing really wrong? Absolutely the, nothing. At, yeah. I mean, the va here's the thing. A large number of people worry that they're going to introduce the department into a family's life unnecessarily and something bad is going to happen. There is an extremely high standard um, and a judge who has to be involved before a child is ever removed from a home. A child mm -hmm. has to be at imminent risk of death or serious harm to be removed. That's the legal standard. And a judge has to make that determination. Um, and so... Very often when we work with families, our goal is to strengthen that family and to provide them whatever services they need. When we are at a point oftentimes that we're dealing with that teenager, the families who are still engaged and involved are often at a loss for what to do. They don't know what to do. So we can be very helpful in getting services and helping to introduce them to the proper service referrals um, in order to, to aid that child. As for the individual who's calling, they're absolutely protected under the law. If mm -hmm. you call in good faith, you're absolutely protected under the law. It's anonymous. You don't have to provide your name and number. Um, and nobody can come after you. Um, the only way something like that can occur is if you if you if you made a report in a malicious manner right. with the intent to provide false information. Right. Like so you're trying to get back at your neighbor yes. because you have so a standing grudge. Yeah. Your neighbor, I mean, if you see something and it concerns you and you have a reasonable belief and you call it in, nobody can come back and sue you. Nobody's going to come. There's there's not a repercussion on you. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're able to clarify that for our audience members in case they do feel the uh, need to call and report anything because that's what we want to encourage people to do, that there is no risk for you. There's no risk for a family that's living under the right circumstances, uh, the only way something's going to happen is clearly as if your offices and a judge agreed that the, the child's at risk. Right. So if you could describe for me, we keep talking about services for children. Mm -hmm. What is it that uh, Department of Children and Family Services has identified as proper services that should be provided for children? What is it that as far as trauma, what we refer to as trauma-informed mm -hmm. care? What is it that you guys see as being the ideal circumstance for a child that's been trafficked? Well, that's a great question, and it's a complex question. Um, Please feel free to take I'm your time. Go <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and answer it. Um, first of all, I, I would say the easiest answer to that is we don't know. Yeah. We don't know yet um, because there's very little evidence-based research around this issue. But I think Florida is making great progress there. When everything started, there was a real concept there, that there was a one-size-fits-all response for victims, mm -hmm. and it was the safe house model. We have to have safe houses. Safe houses are a very important piece 
of a full continuum of care. Right. So um, this child is no different than any person. Uh, when we're assessing them and looking at what their needs are, they have to be very um, specific to that individual. And we don't want boilerplate case plans. We don't want we don't want to say, oh, this fits for every single child because it doesn't. Some kids do great at home with wrap services, you know, with specialized services that can come in the home and work with the family and really wrap them um, in in deep in, in treatment. Um, some kids need to be in um, deep in mental health residential placements. Mm-hmm. Some ki- kids need drug and alcohol intervention. Um, some kids need a foster home, but they don't need to be in a therapeutic foster. So there's a whole continuum of interventions. And it becomes really important that that child have an ability to move up and down that continuum of care based on where they are. Sometimes when kids start doing really well and they're stabilizing, um, they can really trigger and have some significant issues once they really start to work on their trauma. So they have to have the ability to move um, among those placements based on what their specific needs are, but still have continuity of treatment. And what I mean by that is, it's not helpful to move a child to Miami if they're from Jacksonville, if they're going back to Jacksonville and there's no services there. Right. Or if they have a different therapist. Building these relationships are incredibly complex because these children are very guarded. They do not trust the system as well. They shouldn't in many situations. They don't trust law enforcement. Um, they don't trust DCF. They don't trust the schools. Um, adults have not really been great for these kids. Right. We, you know, we haven't showed up for them. And so, uh, Unfortunately, the person who has showed up for them very often is their trafficker. Even if it's a negative relationship, they're there day in, day out. And what that's what really gives them their power. Absolutely. Um, and, and so they're aware of that. Oh, absolutely. It's a psycho. I mean, it's brainwashing. It's a psychological game. Um, and there's a million books on the market that from pimps who will tell you this is exactly how you create a product. Right. And that child is a product. And that should horrify all of us. But back to the to the concept of, of intervention, you know, um, we're looking at the fact that kids have to be able to seek the services that they need where they are. Now, it may not be safe for them to stay in the county, especially if they're working toward prosecution or if a threat has been made. So there may be the need to relocate them. We have to have the flexibility in the system to respond. Um, the other piece that's really important to me um, is that we don't just guess about what works. Um, I want to see evidence-based outcomes, which means we need independent academic research. Um, And the CHANCE program is a great example of that. Um, uh, Citrus uh, Health Centers down in Miami has the CHANCE program, which is specifically for CSEC kids, Mm -hmm. commercially sexually exploited children. Um, But they have partnered with um, USF, who's doing um, an analysis of their program, which means that we actually get data that says these are the areas that you're making an impact on. Here's the things that aren't working. And it allows this constant um, updating and tweaking to their system to help kids. Right. So, you know, trauma-informed care um, and strength-based services is really a simple concept. You do right by this kid in the safest environment possible, and you build them. So, you know, for instance, with the with the CHANCE program, one of the things that really jumps out at me is that they don't start working with this child and immediately say day one, so tell me about the first time you were raped. Yeah. So let's talk about this um, this gang rape initiation that occurred. So how many times a night were you having sex? You know, they don't do that. They may be six months of just building rapport. 
Right. Let's go to the movies. Let's cook a meal. Do you like to do yoga? Um, what's going on? How's school? Building a relationship with another human being who's going to tell you the most painful and personal things that have happened to them. So they build this relationship and then we send them back to the county where they're from and they have and they have to start all over with another therapist. That's not reasonable. No. It's just not reasonable. It wouldn't be reasonable for Anybody. any person, let alone a traumatized child Absolutely to that not. point. And so, I mean, building that continuum is critical and really understanding um, how do we get them the best care in the best environment so that they can go on and really be reasonable about what that means. If a child has been had complex trauma through their whole childhood, and by that I mean possibly born to a drug-addicted parent or lived in a household with a parent who has a severe drug addiction, um, multiple paramours coming in and out of the house, possible sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Then the sexual exploitation starts on top of that. You have layer after layer after layer after layer of trauma that has to be worked through. That's not happening in a four-week intervention program. Okay. You, you know, it's, we're talking long-term treatment, and we have to be reasonable and realistic of what that means. Interesting. I find all of the, I, I agree with so much of this because so much of this is what we instituted in our drop-in center, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, talking about individualized care and not requiring a child to sit here and talk to me or a therapist about all of the things that they've dealt with from the moment they walk in. This place is, is what I refer to, although it's become a very popular term nowadays, I've always referred to this as a safe place. Mm -hmm. This is a safe place to be. So I don't care if they're here getting psychological care or if they're here watching TV for four hours. That's four hours of the day that we know that they're safe, that they're mm -hmm. in a safe environment and they're being supported so that if they do come to us and say, hey, I want to talk, I really feel like talking right now, then they're here. That's what we're here for. Well, and I think that that's so important because, you know, when we talk to those people, I mean, obviously in our agency has experience in providers, when we talk to kids who have been exploited and we say to them how did this person hook you like where was it? it's all about listening mm -hmm. it's all about availability and that's not a criticism on parents today it's, it's not it's just a reality sometimes of the situations that people find themselves in but children need attention yeah you i mean you could they be a mother it. you could be a mother uh, a single parent yes. and have two jobs exactly just to make ends meet that exactly. doesn't make you a bad parent no, but just, you aren't available and it and it provides a crack for somebody to exploit and so you know it it becomes very very important that um that we understand that it's the availability of that exploiter and their willingness to listen to that child even if they don't care what the kid's saying they're engaged they're listening they know what's going on with that child mm -hmm. and we have to encourage our parents to be those people when they can you know they may not be 12 hours a day you may have three hours but sit down and have a meal with your kid and have a conversation and know what's going on right know who your children's friends are um, I'm going to tell you, as a parent and as a DCF employee, it blows my mind when a parent who doesn't know me, who's never met me, drops their kid off at my house to spend the night with my child. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea what's going on in that household. You need to know. Absolutely. You need to know. And, um, and, and the reality is that for those people who want to help and they don't know how, time is an extremely valuable thing. Um, I have a good friend who's a survivor. Um, and I always ask her, like, what, you know, what was the trigger point for you? What happened? And for her, it was her guidance counselor at school. Really? Yeah, it was her guidance counselor. She was the victim of her mother trafficked her at the age of 11 um, to purchase crack cocaine. 
and um, and but it was her guidance counselor when she was 13 that stepped in and became that person for her you know became um, that parent that her mother was not able to be built a relationship um, and built faith, gave her faith, which was important to her and allowed her to transition and move on with her life. And now she's a survivor leader and speaks all over the world and she's amazing. Um, but it took one person. It took one person to, to try and destroy her. Mm-hmm. It took another person to just be there. And that's, that's all it took for me. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful. And I think people don't understand that people freak out when they worry about, like, say they want to be foster parents and they worry about getting that kid. Well, that kid is every kid. Yeah. Whether they're your biological children, whether they're adopted, whether they're foster kids, every child just needs somebody who will make the effort. And we're tremendously in need of foster parents, especially for teenagers. I read this really shocking statistic the other day that blew my mind that said like 60% of people believe that children are in foster care because they did something wrong. What? I know. Is that crazy? I've never even considered that. I know, but apparently people have this perception, especially the older they are in care, that there's a reason that they're still in care. Somebody would have adopted them, or or they probably have behavioral issues, and that's simply not true. So many of our kids um, do fantastic when they get in a stable foster home or when they had a pre-adoptive family. Um, and so I just really, really encourage anybody who's thinking about it, make the effort. You don't have to commit to anything. You can go to the classes. You can go to an informational meeting in your area. You can take all the time in the world, but try it on and see if it's for you. There are so many kids who just need somebody. Like you said, your experience, my friend's experience. Almost everybody I talked to has said somebody has provided them that transformational relationship. Well, that, that's what my largest goal with the Wayne Foundation's Drop-In Center has been is to provide these kids with, I want to counter what the trafficker is providing. The trafficker is providing them, obviously, with some kind of emotional security, listening, mm-hmm. paying attention to them. So if we can meet all the basic needs like food, clothing, shower, entertainment, mm-hmm. the rest of it, that emotional need. If they will allow me in, now I'm not going to force my way in, but if they allow me in or if they allowed one of our clinicians in, I feel like what our services are here to do is to counter what the trafficker does. So even if, especially if the trafficker is still somewhat mm-hmm. around, because as we know, that very commonly happens. Right. Um, we want to be able to show them like, look, we can provide you with the same exact benefits, but you don't have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. Right. You don't have anything. You don't have to do anything that you later regret. Yeah. Well, I mean, so many, you know, we talk about attention and attention really is just the manifestation of love. Right. So right. many of these children are seeking love. Um Looking for love in all the wrong all places. All the wrong places <laughs> and all the wrong faces sometimes. And, um, I think it's so, you know, when you can have compassion and empathy and really understand um, that if you don't want to foster, show up and do some tutoring. Mm-hmm. Um, Big you, brothers, big sisters. Yeah. You, I was in that program. It was absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. You know, uh, my 80-year-old dad still does AR uh teaching at, mm-hmm. at in the fifth grade where my 21-year-old daughter went to elementary school <laughs> because, you know, he understands the value of donating an hour of your time a week to a child who may not have anyone at home to read to them. Mm-hmm. Um, this can start from as early as um, daycare all the way through. You know, the opportunity to intervene and become that person for a child is critical. You can coach. You can um, mentor. We have such a need for strong, consistent mentors, mm-hmm. you know, for our kids 
um, that there's there's tremendous opportunity to intervene and to be that person just to listen. I think that that's the biggest thing that I needed as a survivor at around circa age 15 mm-hmm. is I really needed somebody who wanted to listen to me. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like they were just doing it because I, you know, because they were there. I felt like they were really engaged right. and that they were connecting with me. And that's what to, what, what it took for me to get away from my trafficker is yeah. to finally meet somebody that could kind of take that place right. that the trafficker was, that he was providing that for me. Mm-hmm. So once I found somebody that would provide the same attention, but without the extra, extra work that was required right. of me. I, I, it just started to sink in immediately. It didn't take long. It right. I think it took about four months before I finally was just like, you know what? I don't, I don't need this person in my life. I don't need this trafficker in my life because they're, it, it's not healthy. Right. And, you know, and the thing is, I think it's really important for the public to understand the, the Stockholm Syndrome, yeah. right? The trauma bond that exists. Um, it's so easy for us to say, you know, sitting here safe and, and good and the ability to eat and the ability to have a place to sleep and, and et cetera, to say, well, why don't you just leave them? Or even worse, well, somebody rescued you and you went right back to them. But you have to understand, first of all, we're asking children right. who do not have fully formed brains. Exactly. Um, some who I think may not have fully formed brains until so they're 30, if I if I want to reference my own kids. Um, but, that is uh, why our <laughs> services extend to 25. Exactly. Because we recognize brain but, does not develop yes. until mid-20s. Um, but also, if you throw trauma into that mix, if right. you throw, I mean, that has a neurological impact. Mm-hmm. So when the public understands that you're dealing with individuals who have complex PTSD. And if you can have compassion for servicemen coming back from war, you can have compassion for children who've suffered abuse. Absolutely. Right? It's the same exact thing. It absolutely thing. is. And, um, and and the child didn't volunteer to join yeah, the yeah. army of child abuse. And there right? was no compensation. No, no it's, um, you know, and there's no glory in it. No. And there's so, a lot of shame. There is. So. And, and so, um, and please, I have nothing but 100% respect for our veterans. But oh, absolutely. I, no, just, but it's, yeah. the co- it's the correlation that they do suffer through the same thing and mm-hmm. that we do see we just don't a majority of people have compassion yeah. for their circumstances. Right. But with these kids, like you said, it's so common that these kids are looked down upon mm-hmm. in some way that somehow, some way, this was their fault. Right. That they that this, they made this happen. Right. And and if, if people could understand... Pimps are very powerful because they make promises that they follow through on. Absolutely. They also make threats that are very believable. Mm-hmm. And so to the child, you may say, this kid is safe. They're in a house. But they know that that pimp probably knows where they are. Oh, yeah. Or does know if they meet up with them somewhere and they haven't tried to leave and go back to them, there's going to be consequences. Right. So they really have to feel safe where they are. And they really have to. Um, the, the running component is a piece of the trauma. It's very frustrating to the people who work in the field because you're like, what do we do to stop this running? And what we found is interventions are really effective at slowing it down, shorter periods, longer durations between runs. And we and that's what we're, we're aiming at is mm-hmm. making them feel safer and safer and safer so they'll stay. Um, but fear drives them. Yes. You know, and then and then when you you don't want to become involved in the system, then where you're a number. Right. Because you weren't a number to that pimp. No. To your boyfriend. He made you right. believe that there's that you, a relationship. Absolutely. And what you don't have a relationship with your DCF caseworker. Well, I think some do. Well, I just mean in the in the in outset. In the same way. In yeah. the outset. I mean I think I think, you know, it's really about trying to find a way to connect um with that child 
and find out whoever it is that can make that connection. Sometimes it is their caseworker. Sometimes it's their investigator. Right. Sometimes it's a school person. Sometimes it's a cop. We had a fantastic case in Orlando with uh, Master Sergeant uh, Patrick Gukian, who was with um, OPD. He had such a good relationship with this kid. He drove all the way to Miami, picked her up and brought her back. Um, when she ran down there, um, and she trusted him, and that's why she was able to get the help and why she's been out of life now for about a year and a half. That's wonderful. And is doing well. Um, so it doesn't matter to us who connects to that kid, as long as they're healthy and appropriate. Right. Um, whoever that kid, res- you know, what resonates for that child is what we want, because there's a lot of research that shows a child needs one adult in their life who really is transformational for them mm-hmm. to go on to become, you know, to succeed and set goals and really have self-esteem. Um, and that's what we want for them. I think that I, I think that your ideas of what is needed out there is absolutely, I a hundred percent as a survivor and as someone who works with this population, I absolutely agree with you. Well, and you know, the other thing is we have to adjust all the time. We know, right? Yeah. None of us can go in this. Um, probably, I think our survivors have a little more ability to say, "Look, this is what we need to be doing." For those of us who are kind of outside and trying to build a system, we can't be ego driven. Mm-hmm. We have to be focused at all times on um, the well being of the kids that we serve, and we have to be willing to adjust and change based on the information that we're receiving and what we're learning. Right. We can't be rigid. That's one of the things I think I love about this system in Florida. I think our legislature. Um, our governor and our administrator, our administration, you know, our secretary, um, Carol, they give us this flexibility to adjust all the time. They listen to us when we say, here's what we're seeing, here's what we need. They're like, on it, done. And they're making it a priority. Um, I think that's why Florida is one of the leaders when it comes to child welfare response on human trafficking. Florida is one of the leading states that's really moving forward, um, dedicating resources, funding, but making the response and the prevention a priority. Right. So why don't we, for the audience, can you explain what DECE, as far as, uh, because every state's different, we Mm -hmm. should go ahead and note that now, that every state's laws as far as trafficking, their structure on who helps these kids, who's investigating it, is very, very different. But uh, we're focused on Florida's, and it's, Florida has a very, uh, in my opinion, uh, advanced methodology. They, they're really seeing this as a problem. Are, are we rated as the number three state in the country for trafficking? Well, I number three calls to the um, human yeah. trafficking hotline. Yes, right. Polaris okay. hotline. Um, what I was going to say is, um, can you explain to our audience what, as far as um, the legislature is concerned, what role did they assign to DCF okay. as far as managing children who have been trafficked? Well, our legislature is amazing. First of all, let me just say, I think they are so forward thinking on this issue. Um, so, like you said, there there are um, many, many different safe harbor laws right. and many different responses. Um, in some states, there's absolute decriminalization of the issue of prostitution for minors. Mm-hmm. Um, in Florida... Law enforcement has the discretion um, to choose whether they arrest or not. Um, they have the option to um, bring the child instead to DCF for services and placement. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons that that discretion becomes important, I think, is because of the issue of recruitment. Right. And the role sometimes of youth in the recruiting of other youth. Law enforcement needs to have some leverage at times to be able to determine um where does that line shift from victim to perpetrator and at what point? Right. That's a complex issue. and I'm That's really, a very complex issue. I, I, Just to I, explain I, to the audience real quick, what, what Kim is referring to is when 
uh, youth who have been engaged in trafficking have maintained a relationship with their trafficker to the point where once they are caught and they get if they are placed in um, any kind of facility where there are other teenagers around, what these um, young people have can do if they are still maintaining a relationship with their trafficker is they can start they can uh, transition from being a victim to procuring which is to um, try to get the other teenagers that are around them to start working within trafficking and specifically for their pimp. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think recruitment is a standard expectation of every pimp. Some kids are good at it. Some are bad at it. Right. Some do it because they are fearful and, and some really want to be involved in the structure of the organization, unfortunately, because of the degree of trauma bonding that has occurred. My um, my high school, the high school I attended, um, I was trafficked while I was a freshman at Venice High. Um, just recently, last year, had a, um, a potential case of mm-hmm. a teenager uh, who was an upperclassman who was going in and um, at the behest of an adult male mm-hmm. who was her trafficker, she went in and was trying to procure... Um, younger underclassmen, like freshmen, mm-hmm. and the re- only reason that she was busted in this, and that he uh, he was eventually busted, was because um, three separate girls went to the guidance counselor mm-hmm. and reported the Good. behavior. Thank that, goodness. Yeah, I mean, well, I was so shocked just to I hear that they reported fantastic. it, um, yeah. and that they stopped it before any recruitment actually right. took place. But when you hear something like that, you realize, like, okay, how common is this? How much is this happening? And then not nobody knows about it. Well, and then, so to go back, so what the legislature basically right. said is, look, this is at the discretion of law enforcement. We respect our law enforcement. They can make the determination of when they um, can divert and when they need to take more formal action. And if they divert, they can bring that child to DCF. Um, we, we are the state child welfare agency in Florida. Um, and so they said to DCF, look, you guys have this responsibility to identify services and placements to help these kids, mm-hmm. uh, which is been a fantastic um, structure because in many, many states, it's solely been juvenile justice. So it has this very negative connotation, right, of crimin- criminality around the conversation. So Secretary Daly, who is the Secretary for Juvenile Justice here in Florida, and Secretary Carroll, which is my secretary for DCF, have said consistently, look, we need to understand the role of sexual abuse mm-hmm. historically with this population. That's a child welfare issue. Mm-hmm. Um, many of these kids are what we refer to as crossover children, meaning that they're involved with DJJ and they're involved with DCF because with the exploitation often comes what we refer to as masking charges, meaning that there may be other arrests that occur because of the life. Right. Drugs, um, battery, petty theft, things like that. So we need to make sure that this child um, is being protected from, from creating a huge criminal history when they've been exploited and we need to make sure that we're getting them the proper services. Um, and so our two agencies work together beautifully. Our two secretaries are very aligned um, in their thinking. Um, we feel that the right course of action for these kids is appropriate intervention, therapeutic intervention for these kids. Right. This is not about locking children up. This is not about labeling kids. It's really about saying we recognize the experiences that you've had and we want to help you start to overcome some of them so that you can have a healthy adult life so you can move on. Um, And I think where we've been successful in that, we can look at our survivors and see um, the positive outcomes around that, right? When we have a kid who graduates high school, that is a phenomenal win. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's a phenomenal win. Um, when we have kids who are doing beautifully, um, you know, in outpatient treatment after having intensive treatment um, from an inpatient residential program, win-win. Right. Um, but, you know, we also have to be really, re- again, very realistic. You know, these these are not things where you jump up and go, oh, treatment's done, you're cured, everyone go home. Um, these This is lifelong. And people, you know, we have survivors who, uh, and I try and get informed all the time by people who've had the experiences because I haven't. Mm-hmm. And I can't, it's really um, arrogant of me to say, let me let me tell you what you're feeling. Or let right. me tell you what you're, I need to hear from people who know because it helps inform our policy and our practice. And so, I, you know, we have survivors who are 65 years old who say, I can still be triggered today, and I've had 30, 40 years of counseling. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the place that I'm in. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm 31, and I've been in counseling for uh, 12, 13 years now. Well, and I, and I don't have any, I, I don't ever see leaving. Yes. It's too, it, well, it's, it, it, I don't, it, I'm not so much using it anymore as trying to figure things out for myself, but it helps me to process yes. what's going on and, and really under, I'd be able to identify Okay, well, yeah, I'm upset about this trigger, but this is really what's but happening. But this is what it's really about. Well, and that's what, you know, we talk to our kids when they're like, look, we've had enough counseling to say to them, look, it's like getting an oil change on your car. Mm-hmm. you got to maintain the machine. Yeah, absolutely. Right? you got to maintain the machine. And if you don't, you're going to have engine problems, mm-hmm. right? And so it's that same um, helping them understand that um, you're going to have these things that go on throughout life. And even if it means getting into healthy sexual relationships or um, uh, intimate partner relationships that don't devolve into domestic violence or into, you know, because when you've been trafficked, you're in a, a violent, intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's your expectation of a relationship down the road, there's going to be a problem. Absolutely. So it's really important for individuals to learn how to have those healthy relationships. But Overall, so then last year, or in 2014, the legislature gave us um, a new bill, House Bill 7141, um, which was a huge child welfare bill and really said to the department, look, you guys need to step up um, and do what needs to be done. And Florida's really cool because um, I'm the statewide human trafficking prevention director. Many child welfare agencies don't have staff who are specialized to respond to human trafficking. We have not one, but four, because this year I got three staff as well. Yay! Uh, yay! <laughs> so, um, so, which just means that we get to grow and um, all the um, education and awareness piece, but we also really get to focus intently on training focus intently on um, developing assessment and identification tools. So this year we developed um, an identification tool. It's ro- a DJJ, Department of Juvenile Justice, has rolled it out, and mm-hmm. we're rolling it out probably starting in January. We've built a placement tool to help staff really explore what is the best options for kids who've been trafficked. And we're starting an assessment process, looking at an assessment tool. Um, we're really um, looking at what are the appropriate clinical interventions and how do we know that and how do we start to establish evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at a full continuum of care. All of our staff, if they're going to touch a case in which a human trafficking maltreatment is involved, they have to have specialized training. They can't show up. They can't be fresh out of school and go work these cases because they don't, they don't understand the complexity yet that's involved. Um, and that's with our community-based care providers, um, uh, Department of Juvenile Justice and DCF, we all you know, are especially training our, our staff. Um, and so the legislature has been really amazing at listening and asking us, what do you need? What's going on? Tell us what you see. What do you think about this response? Um, and really working hand in hand, really, really amazing. That's wonderful to hear that it's not a case of the legislature dictating to you how to do your job and what your responsibilities are, they're really coming to you and saying, what is it that you need? Yeah, and I think it's a give and take. I mean, I think, you know, at the same time, 
as well they should they hold us to a standard of executing of those and yeah and really um and so it's very symbiotic relationship i think and it's a very effective relationship and i think it's why florida is seen and we are asked to present all of the nation um, because of the fact that child welfare is is very involved and, and really leading part of the conversation here in Florida in partnering with our law enforcement, in partnering with our social service agencies, the faith-based community, our legislature. You know, there's such um, a colla- uh, collaborative response. I, and I think that's why we're effective. We don't have just one voice saying, here's what should be happening. And I don't think we have any problem challenging each other about, well, what about this? And what about that? And you're not thinking about this. and it, when you have people from every walk of life having the conversation, you get the most well-rounded outcomes. Absolutely. I was just at a roundtable discussion um, in Chicago with the Children's Traumatic Stress Network, Mm -hmm. and they brought, it it was invite only, um, and they brought together some uh, of the best minds in the country as far as uh, trauma-informed care for these kids Mm -hmm. and how, how do we address it. And it was very, very funny. At the end of the conference, they were thanking everybody. <laughs> they said, we'd really like to thank Jamie Walton because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. She was the one who brought the information to the Traumatic Stress Network that, hey, I looked on your website. You have nothing about trafficking. Right. She said, so that's what got the ball rolling. And I had to kind of laugh, and I was so embarrassed. I was like, I had no idea that my conversation is what started this. I had but no you know, idea. But see, that's what's so great about it because – People within that structure may never have thought to bring that up. No, they didn't. And but then you, once I did, they were like, of wait. Of course. And that's yeah, the whole, why didn't we see this before? And that's why I think it's so important. The more people you can have at the table talking about an issue, any issue, and being able to work collaboratively, we don't all have to agree, but we all have to want to get to the same place. Um, do you have any other states looking at this model that you have, this, this symbiotic relationship between legislation and DCF? Do you have any other states that are looking at your model and saying, hey, this is a really good idea? Well, I think, um, you know, different states are doing, some of the states are doing fantastic stuff. Um, California, Connecticut, yeah. um, really doing, um, uh, we were just in um, Minnesota looking at their model, um, Georgia. So I think people people are looking at what works within the structure of their states. Uh-huh. And, and different people are at different places in this conversation. One of the really cool things we're working on is trying to put together um, a Southern Region work group where we can just talk to each other mm-hmm. because, you know, we got four people in the state who do this full time right. with, with child welfare. So Louisiana might have one person. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to that person. Right. Because here's the thing. Let's not all reinvent the wheel. If we got a piece of the pie that's working really good and you guys want to work on that piece, then let's maximize our resources as effectively as possible and share information. These things shouldn't be happening in a vacuum. Right. Now, that was my follow-up yeah. question is... Um, have you met with any states um, outside of Florida that you think are really on the cusp of things and that uh, might have um, strategies that could work well in other places? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, like I said, we have reached out to different programs and we've traveled. So we've been to Georgia to talk to them about I know, the Georgia you're Cares always model. Traveling. I know. I know. Um, I know my dogs don't know me anymore. Um, we went to Minnesota because, you know, they're looking at full decriminalization of prostitution, adult interesting. and minors. Um, and so we were really looking at their system and how they It'd be interesting responding. to see that model if it passes. I, I would be very interested to see what's going to happen. Um, and to see what the potential um, 
there's yeah. a, there's potential benefits and yes. and downfalls to that. Agreed. So it's it, it's one Agreed. of those. It would have to be actually enacted for right. there'd be no way to predict right. accurately what would happen. You right. really have to see it in motion. Absolutely. Um, and and there's some really good research on the Nordic model, which is really decriminalization of prostitution. Um, right. The, you know, in Europe, it exists in several places. Um, yeah, that's where it's decriminalized for prostitutes, but it's right. not. It, it's for the still Johns criminalized for, for the Johns. traffickers. Yeah. So they are. So the focus is on on um, prosecuting and, and um, the individuals who are procuring rather than, right? Right. Um, yeah, and I think um, California's doing some amazing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really cool stuff. Um, so I really think, you know, yeah, we've talked to people in uh, Oregon, in um, Utah, in uh, Nebraska, Kansas, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia. Um, we met with people in Georgia, Tennessee, you know, because Connecticut, we, we want to share what we have. Here's what we're doing, guys. And no, nothing we're doing is proprietary. We'll share everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we just want to have a conversation with everybody um, because at the end of the day, um, our agency cares about children. We want the children that we're serving to have the, everything they need. We want the families that we serve to be strong and healthy and able to provide loving, nurturing households for their kids. Um, and so whatever we can learn to bring to the table to help the people of Florida, the people that we serve, is what we want to accomplish. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's why I love working with yeah. you. <laughs> uh, you're very, very forward-thinking. I love that. Um, I really don't like getting into uh, with with people that are like you said. I know I have the I have the answer. I know everything. I I, I like people who are very open minded and saying, "Hey, tell me what you, tell me your ideas. Tell me your thoughts about this." Um, I guess my um, final question for you, uh, as far as uh, the trafficking situation, so much, especially with uh, the internet being designed the way it is now. There's so many different statistics that run around. Mm-hmm. These statistics get debunked and organizations get lambasted for actually using those statistics. So, and then, of course, they have counter statistics say, oh, there's not that. It's, it's not really that big of a problem. If you, and I don't want you to assign an actual number, but how prevalent, if you were to describe to the general population, if you wanted them to understand mm-hmm how much of an issue child sex trafficking is, what would you? What would your response to that be? Well, if we're looking in the state of Florida, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, we re- started, I think it was 2009, we received the first maltreatment on human trafficking. And so pretty consistently each year, the number of calls to the hotline um, for human trafficking have doubled. And we take labor and sex trafficking. Right. Have doubled. So this year it was about, um, I want to say about, 1,200 unduplicated victims. Okay. Um, those are calls. Those weren't all verified, but those were calls to the hotline. <clears throat> now, to put that in perspective, that's 0.25% of the total number of reports the hotline receives every year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not a huge number. But the reason why it's relevant is because these are the kids who we really should have caught before this. We should have right. intervened and provided It shouldn't have gone this no. far. And, and there are deep-end users there are the kids who are, need the most trauma treatment. They're the kids who need the most mental health intervention. They're the kids who need substance abuse treatment. They're um, the kids who are going to come in and out of child welfare and juvenile justice if we don't intervene and help. And if we can't get them services before they turn 18, they're going to be the kids who are homeless. They're going to be the individuals who are in the Department of Corrections. They're going to be the individuals who die from drug overdoses or homicides. Um, 
or HIV. Right. Um, you know, there so, are people that are vic- who have been victimized and who we owe the right to treatment and help and services. We have an obligation to them before they get to the point where we no longer see them as victims, and now we just see them as criminals. As criminals. Right. So it, by your description, uh, children who are being exploited are almost like on the critical care list oh, yeah. of DCF. They're, they're like the... The transplant patient, right? right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of yeah. in a hospital. Like, yes. the, the, the 1% that everybody has to keep an eye on, and you can't walk away, you have and, to stay on top intensive, of it. intensive, you know, the, the I mean, intensive. Um, they, they need such high levels of intervention and such high levels of supervision and help and attention and that, yeah, they, they are desperately in need of us. And, and the reality is that without us, they could die. That's really deep. That's so deep because that's the truth that they could die, and the the unfortunate the unfortunate reality is that we are uh, you and I both are aware of cases where kids have died. Yes, it's not it, it's not a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It's not a what if scenario. There are documented cases that have been missed by everybody, and then the kid just it, we just didn't get to them in time. So we want to prevent that from happening. You and I both are committed. Our lives are committed to that. Um, I said that was going to be my last question, but I did have one more question I want to ask you because you've had um, you were working with DCF back when I was a kid being investigated by right. my family is being investigated by DCF. What have you seen during your career that has changed for the positive as far as finding these kids? finding placement for them, finding treatment services for them. How has this evolved for you within DCF itself? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you and I talk about it all the time that I I just, I, there are times where I just bang my head on the wall because I thought, oh my God, if I just knew then what I know now, I I miss that kid. I know that kid was trafficked and I miss them. Um, And it just eats me up. But, you know, we have some amazing leadership that have fundamentally changed the department um, to become a transparent agency. The fact that we're sitting here and having this conversation yeah, would so never yeah, have happened yeah, 15 uh, years let's ago. Let's make that clear to the audience that Kim had to get this approved in order to come on this podcast. She wasn't allowed to just, okay, sure. Well, I mean, actually, they said, no, please go and, and say yeah, what they, you no, want they to encouraged say. you but, to. But this wouldn't, I mean, 15 years ago, this never would have happened, right? Right. Um, and so I think the collaborative nature of the department, you know, under under several of the prior secretaries we had, and certainly our current secretary, who is who is all about, hey, you do what it takes to get it done and do it right, you know, and... Um, and so I think that the, the expectation of we're going to provide excellent service and, and we're going to be accountable and we're going to do the right thing is driven in every single day to me. And I, and I, and I think the smaller caseloads have been um, very helpful. Um, you know, I wholeheartedly agree Yeah, it's that. a totally different department than it was um, when, when I started. And, and that is because of all of the people who are involved, not just internal, but external as well, to helping, you know, to get us what we need to do to be better every single day. And I think there's an expectation that we have to be better every single day. But the other thing is we to really talk about from a trafficking perspective, you know, we've talked about all these amazing things today, but the truth of the matter is we are just learning how to crawl. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, this is a brand, I mean, I say all the time, there yeah. is no handbook for this no, job. No, no, no. And, and what I, what I love about our administration, our legislator, legislature, our governor is that they're like, 
we have such an environment right now to say, look, this is what we need. Mm-hmm. And people are listening. And we're able to build the system. I just, I really feel like um, survivors are heard. I feel like the people who are involved are being heard. And I feel like there's a true desire by the people who are involved to make it better, to make, to get, to get this right. Um, we've done, I mean, it blows my mind to think how far we've come in. I mean, I've only been in this position now for two years mm-hmm. and we have gone from, I mean, it's just amazing how much, has, how much has occurred because of all the people that are involved and in, in supporting us. So, um, I, you know, I can't say enough for the fact that we're just starting to crawl. I have tremendous hope. I have tremendous hope for moving forward because I think the more we allow people to see the children that we serve, and understand the role of trauma and how much we have to help people overcome the experiences um, that are stagnating them or that are that are leading to substance abuse that are um, causing um, unrest in their mind or um, or you know anxiety and depression and all those things and, and it's so important that we understand those things and and the fact that we get it that we're getting it. Mm-hmm. These are people who 10 years ago would have just moved out of the system and never been helped. And I feel like we're impacting them. I would say that um, from a compare from a standpoint of mine, of someone who worked with DCF as a kid and, and had those investigations done on my family and now working with your agency directly in partnership, I can say personally in the last 20 years, it's it's night and day. It's it's absolutely night and day. the The way that my caseworker came across was a constant threat. Right. It, it, that she did not. Although I'm sure in her heart she was there to protect me, she didn't come across that right. way. It, not even to me. I wouldn't expect her to come across that way to my mother, but she definitely didn't come across that way to me. She came across as a threat, right. as someone that I should be scared of. Well, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that you're willing to come and talk to our staff. Because, right. <laughs> you know, I just, things have to be real to everybody. That That's just the truth. And so to have a face and a story and a person who can answer all the questions and say, you know, every time I meet a survivor who's been involved with the department, the first thing I ask them is, what did we do wrong? Right. What did right. we do wrong? Because that's something, and not to imply that we do it, but, I mean, what could we have done better? Even if we were fantastic for you. What could we have done better? Right. Um, because there's always have, room for improvement. There's always room. And, and when you're talking about human beings and when you're talking about trying to give people more opportunity, it always has to be about what could we have done better? Mm-hmm. Always. I think for I, I think it's the way I run my drop-in center. That's mm-hmm. what I'm constantly asking is what is it that we should be doing? What is it is for especially for individualized care? What is it that this person needs and how can we obtain it? How can we get there? How can we be focused on them? So if um, you were to wrap this up, is there anything, because I know I've asked you several questions and we've we've kind of touched on a lot of subjects um, broadly as far as DCF's role in um, helping these victims. Is there anything that you would like to add or you would like to say? In closing? Yeah, just like, is there anything that you feel like like you came here and you said Mm -hmm. you had in your mind you wanted to get out there? What I would say is, as we finish this is... Because Kim came a long way to record this podcast. (laughs) Yay! Um, I'm so touched. (laughs) I love coming here. Um, Every single person who's listening has the power to change the life of a child. Every single person who's listening, whether that means you see it and report it, whether that means you volunteer 
in whatever capacity with a child. Any child. Any child. Or whether, and come on guys, please think about becoming foster parents. Um, you know, we are desperately in need all Something the time. my husband and I are considering Oh, I would love it. You know, my dad grew up in foster care. He went in at the age of two and aged out at 18. Um, and so it's, it's really, really important to me that we give our kids loving homes. Absolutely. And so that's the last thing I would say. Just please, if everybody takes a moment and just think, like, what could I do today to change the life of a child? And it doesn't have to be spectacular, guys. It can be something small. Okay. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us if um, uh, Kim is a representative from Florida DCF. So why don't you tell us the Florida tip line? Mm-hmm. And that, um, that will also be, uh, I'll be having the... Um, uh, PSA, the see it port report at PSA all over our social media and our website and stuff. So you can get the information there. But what is the number for to, Florida child for, abuse hotline? Yeah, is one eight hundred ninety six abuse. Okay, and then for those of you who are not in Florida, there is an, a national eight hundred number for potential any potential trafficking victim. It doesn't have to be a child, um, a, whether it's uh, labor or sex trafficking. If you have any suspicions whatsoever, it is a uh, non law law enforcement uh, phone number. So you can make an anonymous tip, just like you can with DCF's number, and that is eight 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 three seven three seven so that is the Wayne Foundation podcast for this month. Uh, I thank you so much, Kim, for coming in. We've been trying to get Kim in forever uh, for the last few months, but she is so busy because she has such an important job saving the lives of children. Saving the lives of children. How You must wake up every day and just like, oh. Well, thank you so much for, for letting me be here and, and uh, for letting me talk to you about this today. All right. I'm Jamie Walton, and this is my guest, Kim Grabeer. Okay. And I thank everybody for listening, and I hope you have a great month. Thank you. Have a great holiday. All right. Bye-bye. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com. Do you ever wanted to be the Batman, dreamed of being the Dark Knight himself? Well, guess what? You can. Because you know what Batman does? He protects the innocent. And who are the innocent fucking kids, man? That's why we set up the Wayne Foundation. That's right. Uh, Jamie Walton runs our uh, the Smodco official charity, the Wayne Foundation. Uh, it's uh, You can find us at Wayne, W-A-Y-N-E-F-D-N dot org. Uh, Wayne Foundation is committed to spreading awareness of commercial sexual exploitation of children as well as domestic minor, minor sexual trafficking occurring within the United States. Uh, if you've never heard the episode of Sminterview where I sat down and talked to Jamie Walton, um, do yourself a favor, go listen to it, and then come back and throw some shekels, if you can, uh, at our charity movement here. So far, the Wayne Foundation do an excellent job. Help her out, man. Go to waynefoundation.org to learn more, or you can follow, uh, and that's uh, org. or uh, you could follow them on Twitter at, at the WayneFDN, or you could follow Wayne Foundation President Jamie Walton uh, at, at Jamie Walton and learn more. But uh, help out. Here's your chance to be the Batman. Give if you can. If you ain't got no money don't worry about it maybe you can help in some other way or whatnot or maybe help when you can when you have the chance when you have some loot but if you got some handy loot man and you want to just punch fucking evil in its turkey neck man these fuckers that take kids and put them on a fucking stroll make them force them into fucking prostitution and shit like that horrible shit that you know we wish there was a batman around for to do something about 
help us out, uh, help out Jamie, help out all uh, those people forced into sexual trafficking. Go to the WayneFoundation.org and be a Batman. <laughs>